I love a good mystery, and so does everyone else. In fact, everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. I know that our listeners will absolutely love this game because you are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder, and you're becoming a detective. You're looking for clues, and each scene will lead you to a new thrilling storyline. This is a great way to engage your observation skills to uncover key pieces of information that lead you on to many chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. Right now, I'm in the process of interviewing family members, and this is bringing me back, just so you know, to my days in law enforcement, and I'm having such a blast with it because it is so much more lighthearted, but it also has the mystery of where will this take me? You can even chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. Megan, I think we should join a detective club together. We've got this. (laughs) Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. In the winter of 1991, tragedy hit the local hospital in Lincolnshire, England, when many children were suddenly stricken by a mysterious and deadly illness. Doctors were baffled as these children were admitted to the hospital separately and for relatively minor conditions. However, the children did have one thing in common. They were all left in the care of the same nurse. Could it be that a person trusted to guard the welfare of these patients was actually the one putting them in peril? What possibly could turn a nurse to a murderer? This is episode 45, The Beverly Allett Story. Megan. Hey, Aime. How are you? <laughs> Good. How are you? I'm great. It's great to see you. Very excited. We are really excited about this week's episode. We always are. <laughs> <laughs> I'm super excited this week because we are partnering with Acorn to bring this special UK episode. Acorn TV is a streaming service that's rooted in British television. It has a rich catalog of exclusive award-winning series across genres including mysteries, dramas, comedies, and so much more. Don't forget to try your 30 days free at www.acorntv when you use promo code WOMEN. And we just want to say a big thank you again to Acorn TV for giving us the opportunity to bring you these additional four episodes this month. Today is the fourth and final episode in our special UK edition series. And Megan, not only is this a special UK episode, we are covering a serial offender. That's your forte, isn't it? One of my one of my fortes. Have you heard of this case? I actually haven't. You're really good at picking cases. Like you're really good at picking ones that I don't know, which I appreciate all the time. Excellent. Thank you to Emma and Natalie Bellino for their help researching today's case. Thanks, guys. Beverly was born October 4th, 1968 in Grantham, Lincolnshire, England, and she was one of four children. By all accounts, she had a very normal upbringing. She had two parents and she had two sisters and one brother. No reports of any abuse or trauma. However, from an early age, she was described as exhibiting some strange behaviors. So mostly, she would go to great lengths to get attention. She was going to school claiming that she had these horrific injuries, but she would never 
never show anyone what was under her casts or her bandages. So what she would do, Megan, is she would wear casts and dressings over fake wounds just to get attention from others, especially when she was at school. She was described as a pretty poor student. She didn't do very well academically, and she ended up dropping out of school around the age of 16. Okay. As a teenager around this time, she would babysit a lot of the neighborhood children, and everyone said that she was really interested in babysitting, and everyone knew to go to her if they needed someone to watch their kids. As a teenager, though, her weight started to increase, and she also became increasingly attention-seeking and even aggressive towards people. She also spent a considerable amount of time in the hospital with many physical complaints. She was always complaining about something. She would tell stories that she fell off a horse or got hit by a car. She cut her arm. She burned her leg. At one point, her behavior even resulted in her convincing a surgeon to remove her appendix, which turned out to be perfectly healthy. Oh, these are early red flags, and I, I know yeah, where I know we're going. I know that you know exactly yeah, I what know this where we're is. Going. Yes. I mean, she was clearly manipulative, but I don't think a doctor should just take people's word for it and remove Body parts. I mean, you got to be real convincing on that one. And after she got her appendix out, it took so long to heal because she wouldn't stop messing with the scar. And she would often like pick the scar and she would often self-harm in many, many ways. She was probably trying to prolong it too for the attention. You're absolutely right. And she would also resort to doctor shopping. Have you heard of this? No. Doctor shopping. Basically, she would go doctor to doctor because doctors would start catching on to her attention-seeking behaviors. Oh, yeah. No, this... I'm sorry. I have heard of this. It's usually... I've heard of it um, in different ways when people are trying to get narcotics or yes. other types of Yes, you know, that, that's drugs. called doctor shopping right. as well. This behavior, of course, sounds like something we've seen many times before. Megan, what does this sound like? Sounds like Munchausen. Sounds like Munchausen. Just to give you a brief idea for those of you who don't know, it's a rare type of mental disorder in which a person fakes illnesses. They'll lie about their symptoms. They'll make their, themselves appear sick or purposely unwell. We see it mostly in young children, and it's considered a type of self-harm. Yeah, it's mostly women too, correct? Absolutely, mostly women. At some point, this behavior failed to elicit the desired reaction in others, so she began to start harming other people to satisfy her desire to be noticed. What does this sound like? Munchausen by proxy. The Munchausen by proxy is a term that was used for a rare but serious form of abuse where a person fakes or produces symptoms in someone else, typically their child. Okay, going back to Beverly's back. Background. She attended Grantham College in Lincolnshire, where she trained as a nurse. And during college, she met her first boyfriend, a man by the name of Stephen Biggs. She didn't really date much, and this was the first time she had a romantic relationship, most people say. She acted very strange in this relationship. She demanded that she become his girlfriend, and when he gave her a ring, she declined and said she didn't want to get married. But then at another point, she asked him to marry her. A lot of strange things. She refused to hold his hand in public. She re she reportedly would only have sex with him once a month. They had very violent fights in which Stephen was the victim of, you know, domestic violence. She would knee him in the groin. She also had a habit of lying. She made several claims that she had been raped and that Stephen had AIDS. Oh, wow. She also claimed that Stephen raped her. But all of these things were never corroborated and likely a lie when you look at her previous behavior. But her odd behaviors continued when she was suspected of smearing feces along the walls of a nursing home where she trained. That doesn't even make sense to me, to be honest. No, I don't think I don't it's supposed see, to. <laughs> I, I don't, yeah, I don't even see where that fits with any pattern, but okay, go ahead. So that's just an example of, you know, this kind of odd behavior she was having. Her attendance was also very poor due to the amount of illnesses, quote, illnesses that she had. 
And as a result of all of this, she ended up failing her nursing examinations. Well, it's interesting because you said she dropped out of school. So she must have kind of gotten a GED, then gone back and for nursing. Okay, I'm, I get it. I'm putting it together. Go ahead. Yep. Despite Beverly's history of poor attendance and odd behavior, she was hired on a temporary six-month contract at the chronically understaffed Grantham and Kestevin Hospital in Lincolnshire in 1991. And this is where Beverly began to work as a nurse in the children's ward. At the time, there were only two trained nurses on the day shift and one for the night. So when she started, it was very much understaffed. And it seems that even though she failed her nursing exams, they may have been desperate. And that's why they were giving her like a temporary contract. Yeah, okay. People she worked with started noticing strange things about her behavior not long after she began working there. While talking to other nurses, Beverly would often make strange statements. At one time, she claimed that a poltergeist stuck a carving knife into a pillow, that this poltergeist had set her bathroom curtains on fire and fed tablets to her landlady's dog. None of this makes sense, nor is it supposed to, Megan, because you're looking at me like, what are you doing? Well, this sounds like delusional, so I'm not sure if this is, she's now blurred the line between, Mm -hmm. you you know what I mean, like exaggeration to delusion. Yep. And while she worked at this hospital, the police were called on two different occasions, one time to investigate a kitchen fire And another time, there were human feces found in the refrigerator. Oh, my God. Okay. A few nurses expressed that they thought that Beverly should have a psychiatric examination, but they never said anything to her. I don't know if they were scared of her. They just felt like it wasn't their place. But either way, it was at this hospital that the tragic events at the center of today's episode took place. There are several victims in this case, and of course, they all deserve to have their stories heard. So I'm going to discuss each, but I'm not going to spend too long on the specifics of each case because for the sake of time, I want to make sure that we are able to talk about the arrest, the trial, the aftermath, the theory. So I might not spend as much time on victims as we normally would like to. Okay. So this all starts on February 21st, 1991, when Liam Taylor was admitted to Ward 4, where Beverly worked with a chest infection. I read a few reports that said Liam was only seven weeks old. Alet went out of her way to reassure his parents that he was in capable hands with her, and she told them, you know, go home and get some rest. So obviously the parents were by his side, and she was so loving that they really trusted her, so they went home to get some rest. When they returned, Alet advised them that Liam had endured a respiratory emergency, but he had recovered from it. This was very confusing because it seems like out of nowhere, things took a turn for the worse, but you know, no one suspected anything. Alet even ended up volunteering for an extra night shift so that she could watch over the boy. The parents at this point chose to spend the night at the hospital as well. And to the shock of everyone, Liam had another respiratory crisis just before midnight, but yet again, he had recovered. Alet was left alone once again with the boy and his condition worsened dramatically. He became deathly pale with red blotches appearing on his face, at which point Alet summoned an emergency resuscitation team. So in England, they call it the emergency resuscitation team. It would be our code blue. Got it. Someone's in respiratory distress. At the time, Alet's nursing colleagues were confused by the absence of alarm monitors, which had failed to sound when he stopped breathing. So normally there'd be alarms, and for some reason they didn't go off. And this seemed concerning, but it was kind of forgotten about since they were really focused on this little boy. No one really thought anything of it. This Despite the best efforts of the resuscitation team, Liam suffered severe brain damage and remained alive only due to the use of life support machines. 
At this point, his parents made the agonizing decision to remove their baby from life support, being that they were told his condition would not improve. He died on February 22nd, and his cause of death was recorded as heart failure as a result of an undiagnosed heart condition. Everyone on the ward was in mourning and really dumbfounded as to what could have happened to this little boy. And Alet was never questioned about her actions leading up to his death. There was really no reason to question her. Just two weeks later, Timothy Hardwick, an 11-year-old boy with cerebral palsy, was admitted to Ward 4 of the hospital due to an epileptic fit. Due to his condition, he was not to be alone at all, so Beverly Allett stayed with him and was put in charge of his care. Once again, after being left alone with the boy, she summoned the emergency team who found him without a pulse and turning blue. Unfortunately, the team was unable to revive him. An autopsy was performed, but there were no red flags, and his cause of death was determined to be a complication of his existing condition. Okay. Everyone, once again, confused, upset. How could another child be lost so soon? But nobody thought anything nefarious was going on. Well, it's tragedy. It's a small child, but the children are already in the hospital for a condition. So there's that, you know. Exactly. In fact, Beverly was even consoled because two of her patients had passed away. So she was the victim in a way because she was so close to these patients. And you see what this is setting up for when we talk about theories. Less than a month after Timothy Hardwick's death, one-year-old Kaylee Desmond was admitted to the hospital because of a chest infection which she seemed to be recovering well from. However, five days later, with Alad in charge of her care, Kaylee went into an unexplainable cardiac arrest. Chillingly, this was actually in the same bed that Liam had died just a few weeks before. She was able to be revived, and the staff decided to transfer to another hospital, Queens Medical Center in Nottingham. It was a larger hospital, and I think at this point, they weren't taking any chances with things going on, and they wanted this girl to get more care. Soon after she arrived in Nottingham, The attending physician discovered a really odd thing. She had a puncture hole in her armpit with an air bubble near the hole. Yep. So this showed up in chest x-rays. Yep. This sounds familiar to you? Oh, sure. Shockingly, they attributed this to an accidental injection and no investigation was initiated. That's surprising. Right? And although she made a recovery, she would never be the same. She had several medical issues and to this day, she requires medical and psychological care. I couldn't find exactly what type of long-standing medical issue she has, but I was able to find that she has severe anxiety and severe mental health complications because she's fearful of what happened to her. Mm -hmm. The next tragedy came when five-month-old Paul Crampton was admitted on March 20th, 1991, due to a non-serious lung infection. Right before he was about to be discharged, his condition had improved, so they were actually preparing for his release, so he was doing very well. Alet was alone with Paul, and she called for help because Paul appeared to be suffering from insulin shock. He got better, and then this would happen again. This would happen on three separate occasions. He went into a near coma, and doctors could not explain why his levels were fluctuating. He too, like Kaylee, was transferred to the hospital in Nottingham. Alet ended up riding in the ambulance with him, and when they arrived, he was found to have too much insulin in his system. Luckily, he did end up surviving. But listen to this, Megan. He had over 43,000 milliunits of insulin which is the highest they say they have ever seen. I think normal somewhere around 500. And please tell me now there's going to be a problem or how are they going to explain this? (laughs) Megan, how was this not enough to raise alarm bells? I do not know, but... That's shocking. Yep. Just the next day, five-year-old Bradley Gibson was admitted to the hospital due to pneumonia and he went into an unexpected cardiac arrest. 
Once wow. again, he was resuscitated and saved. When his blood results came back, they showed high levels of insulin, which the physicians could not explain. That night, once again, while under Alet's care, he suffered yet another heart attack. He too was transferred to Nottingham Hospital where he made a full recovery. Now, this is just too much of a pattern not to start paying We're attention. We're not even near done yet, Megan. Yeah, and I, although I actually know cases where this has happened as well, so. At this point, there's enough of a pattern, but it keeps going. Okay. Just the day after Bradley was transferred, two-year-old Yakun Chang was admitted because of a fractured skull from falling out of a window. In the care of Alet, his oxygen levels dropped dangerously two times. Once again, Beverly raised the alarm and he was transferred to Queens Medical Center in Nottingham. And similar to the boy before him, he, re- he made a full recovery and went home. So it seems like these sick children, the second they left this hospital and went to another hospital, they all got better. I don't know how no one put this together yet. On April 1st, 1991, two-month-old Becky Phillips was admitted for a stomach virus. Becky and her twin sister Katie were born premature, and they both suffered some lingering health problems, so everyone just assumed this was part of what had plagued them since they were born. She was being cared for by Beverly Allett when she started exhibiting symptoms of hypoglycemia, which is low blood sugar, which can be caused by too much insulin. Okay. She was examined, and the doctors couldn't find anything wrong with Becky, and as a result, they sent her home. During that night, she went into convulsions, and when her parents contacted contacted a physician, they were told that she probably had colic. Okay. Tragically, she later died that evening. And her cause of death was attributed to what is known as cot death. Cot death is similar to what we call SIDS, sudden infant death syndrome, which is just the sudden unexplained death of a child who is less than one years old. Becky's surviving twin, Katie Phillips, was brought into the hospital as a precaution. Poor family. Oh my God. So the family was worried that perhaps it was, you know, some genetic abnormality that caused Becky's death and they were not going to take any chances with their only surviving child. Right. Little did they know they were taking her to the place that, you know, harmed her. While she was in Beverly's care, and at this point, Beverly was the main nurse on the ward, Katie's heart stopped and the resuscitation team was summoned yet again. They were able to save her, but unfortunately, two days later, she suffered another attack, which resulted in the collapse of her lungs. Katie was then transferred to another hospital where they found that five of her ribs were broken. Did she survive? Hang on. They don't know why her ribs were broken, but they attribute it to possibly revival attempts, but there's really no way to know. In addition to that, she suffered serious brain damage as a result of the oxygen deprivation. The doctors also concluded that Katie had large doses of insulin and potassium in her system. While she was lucky to be alive, Megan, she now had severe medical issues such as partial paralysis, cerebral palsy, and sight and hearing damage. Oh, God. You want to hear the sickest part of this? Sue Phillips, the mother of Katie and Becky, had asked Beverly Allett to be Katie's godmother because she was so grateful to Beverly for saving her child's life. Beverly was a master manipulator. She made everyone think that she was part of being a victim here. And little did this poor mother know that Allett was actually responsible for causing the death of their one daughter and the irreversible harm of their other. That's terrible. Over the next two weeks, the incidences of trauma continued. Luckily, however, there were no more deaths. But similar to Katie's fate, there were plenty of situations where children suffered severe complications. There was seven-year-old Matthew Davidson who arrived at the hospital after a non-severe wound injury. He suffered a heart attack but survived. Then there was nine-month-old Christopher King and eight-month-old Christopher Peasgood who were also injured by Beverly while under her care. Next was one of her youngest victims, a seven-week-old baby, Patrick Elstone, who was admitted for a minor ear infection. 
when he was found unconscious, once again after being in Beverly's care. In this case, another nurse on duty reported that the alarm that alerts everyone when someone stops breathing had been turned off. Remember, this happened in an earlier case. So now a nurse is saying this seems weird, but again, no one really suspected anything. Suspicions slowly start to grow around this time, but doctors and nurses suspected that it was perhaps an outsider who was harming the children. They could not have comprehended the idea that one of their own was inflicting the harm on these young patients. And can you believe it? They had not contacted authorities to this point. I've actually seen that happen with other healthcare situations. Hospitals are usually afraid to contact authorities. They're also, they worry about their negligence issues, things like that. And their own liability. Yep. But I think because they didn't sound the alarm earlier, you know, some of these harms could have been prevented. Absolutely. Anyway, finally, in April 1991, Beverly's killing spree would come to an end after a 15-month-old girl, Claire Peck, was admitted to the hospital after suffering an asthma attack. Now, Claire was put on a ventilator and she required constant observation. And once again, while in the care of Beverly, she went into cardiac arrest. And this was also a day before she was due to be discharged. So she was also looking like she her condition was improving. Once again, she was resuscitated and considered stable, but she sadly died following another cardiac arrest again while in the care of Alit. When an autopsy was performed, it was discovered that she had traces of potassium in her blood mm. and linocaine in her tissues. And linocaine Linocaine is a drug that is often given during cardiac arrest to adults, but not suitable for babies. After this death, the hospital management finally called the police. And now the police were investigating 25 suspicious cases. And they found a few similarities in all of these cases. All of the victims had high levels of insulin and or potassium in their system. And guess what was the only linking factor? That Beverly Allett was their caretaker, every single one of them. Exactly. Beverly Allett was their caretaker. Then other things start coming up. The key that accessed the insulin cabinet went missing, and the person who reported it missing was Beverly Allett, so this made her look suspicious. Plus, they were trying to check the records when they noticed that several pages were missing from the logbook, and these happened to match the dates of the suspicious deaths and injuries. And guess where they found those pages eventually? In Beverly Allett's possession. (laughs) It was found in Beverly's home after a search was conducted. Now, on May 21st, 1991, Beverly was finally arrested and she was released on bail, unfortunately. And they waited until November of that year to formally charge her. I guess they were collecting evidence and building their case. Mm -hmm. There are a bunch of interrogations you could hear online, and she denies, 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 as you would expect. Okay. When she was formally charged, she was charged with four counts of murder, 11 counts of attempted murder, and 11 counts of causing grievous bodily harm. Wow. And this was the worst in history at this time and since then as far as crimes against children. And she got bail. She did get bail. Okay. Different than the U.S. system yep. in terms of bail and uh, potentially dangerous people. Megan, I'm sure you know of the Harold Shipman case. I do very well, yes. Yeah, so Harold killed over 200 patients. He was a medical doctor. He ended up only being charged with, I believe, 15 deaths. And I mentioned that Beverly's was the worst in history, but it's the worst as far as crimes against children because mm-hmm. Shipman did not target children. He killed adults. Yeah. While being interrogated, as I mentioned, she remained calm, denied any foul play, and said she was merely caring for these children. And at the beginning, most of her colleagues and the parents of the victims supported Beverly and believed that she had nothing to do with the crimes and almost that she was like a scapegoat for the Mm. police and the hospital. That would quickly change, especially after since she left the hospital, all of a sudden there were no more incidences of death or illness of this kind. While interrogating Beverly, they found that she demonstrated a pattern of behavior that pointed to a very serious personality disorder. Beverly was visited and assessed by numerous healthcare professionals while awaiting her trial, but she continuously refused to confess to any murder or injuries. 
And while she waited for her trial, she developed anorexia, which is just a further indication of the state she was in. Now, a person who has this condition will intentionally restrict their food intake as a way to help them manage emotional challenges. And I think in this case, it wasn't due to a concern about her body weight or, you know, pressures, external pressures. It was probably having to do with anxiety, low self-esteem, trauma, or just a way to gain control over her life. Because I think at this point, things started to unravel for her. I'd say it was, if I had to guess, I'd say it's probably control because she could no longer control the situations with children. And, you know, she had to do something. And Mm -hmm. when we began in the beginning, you know, her behavior began with herself and extended outward. So now herself is the only one that she has left. You're absolutely right. She doesn't have access to the other people anymore. Her trial was delayed several times due to her illnesses. Once again, she did lose a lot of weight. You could see it in the pictures, but I believe it. I'm actually surprised she was even competent to stand trial because she's clearly very ill. It's super interesting that these illnesses returned after she could no longer harm the children, right? When she was younger, she would harm herself. And then when she was a nurse, she would harm others. And now it's coming back. So it's like Munchausen's, Munchausen's by proxy back to Munchausen's. It's so interesting. It's about opportunity and access, as you would say, too, though. Yep. Now, this case was huge, as you would expect. And the press were all over the story. It was so tragic. The victims were so young and innocent. The hospital was also under a lot of scrutiny. Like, how could they have missed this all? Yeah. Finally, the trial began at Nottingham Crown Court on February 15th, 1993. And this is almost two years after her arrest. That's about right, though. Yeah. Usually, yeah, it should be a couple years for a major trial like this. Yeah, then this definitely was a major trial. The prosecutors demonstrated to the jury that Beverly was on duty during all of the episodes and that there was a lack of suspicious episodes whenever she was not there. They also presented the evidence of high insulin and potassium levels and drug injections and puncture marks on the victims, which were also linked to Beverly. She was also accused of cutting off her victim's oxygen, either by smothering or turning off oxygen machines in some cases. Yeah, okay. The trial lasted almost two months, but Beverly only attended about 16 days due to her various illnesses throughout the trial. Yeah, well, they can have the trial go on without her. Yep, and they sure did. And she was convicted by a jury on May 23rd, 1993, and given 13 life sentences for murder and attempted murder. You know, this is really up there. They, you know, in the UK, they don't sentence like this. Harold Shipman got 15 life sentences, which was considered by far the highest sentence in the UK. And this is not very far behind that. Her trial judge recommended that she serve a minimum term of 40 years, which would keep her in prison until at least 2032 at the age of 64. She didn't take, uh, she didn't take the stand, correct? She did not take the stand. Okay. I mean, I think that's brilliant. She should not have. (laughs) Yeah. In August of 2006, she requested an appeal on the length of her sentence. And on December 6, 2007, the high court ruled that Alit would have to serve at least 30 years in prison and have to wait until at least 2022, now at the age of 54, until she could apply for parole. The judge acknowledged that there was an element of sadism in her actions and stated, quote, by her actions, what should have been a place of safety for its patients became not just a place of danger, but if not a killing field, something close to it. Mm. Joanne Taylor, the mother of Alet's first victim, Liam, said she was pleased with the judge's verdict and ref- and his reference to Alet's sadism. In court, she said, that's what we all felt at the time. There's a fine line between evil and illness, and I'll never forget him saying that word today. So, you know, this sadism really stuck with people. And then um, the father of the 15-month-old Claire Peck, he was absolutely delighted with the outcome and pleased for the other families. What's interesting about this trial and the conviction is that it was the harshest sentence ever given to a female. Mm. But I don't know about you, but I think this is, you know, given the horrific suffering of the victims and their families and the disgrace she brought upon nursing as a profession, this seems right to me. Are we there where we're talking about our opinions? We're not. I'm I'm sorry. Then I'm going to hold off. (laughs) Okay. A few more things, Megan. 
Another interesting outcome, the maternity unit in Grantham and Kesha Hospital was shut down altogether after the trial. So what ended up happening? Beverly Allett ended up being incarcerated at Rampton Secure Hospital in Nottingham, which is a high security facility that houses individuals detained under the Mental Health Act. Basically, she's being civilly committed. Was that part of her sentence? It was. Yes, it was part of her sentence that she was pretty much being civilly committed. That's what we do here, where if you're a risk to yourself or others, you can be committed and treated against your will. Right, you can. I was just wondering if it was part of her prison sentence because civil commitment too here can be used post-sentence yes. or in lieu of a sentence. Um, yeah, so I think it remained, I think it was clear to them that although technically she would be up for parole, she wasn't going to go anywhere anytime soon. And the way I see it is they were going to be committing her to, you know, the mental health facility um, until if or when she restored to competency and then maybe transferred her to prison. During her time at the this hospital, she began attention-seeking behavior yet again. She was eating glass, pouring boiling water on her. Again, she was just doing anything she could to get this, you know, she was doing this attention, self-harming behavior once again. And because of her behavior, and because of her behavior and the horrendous nature of the crimes, she was placed in the home office list of criminals that will never be eligible for parole. Oh, that's interesting because the judge said she could be. I yep. didn't realize they could then rescind that and make this determination. Very interesting. I don't think we can do that here, can we? No. If you're eligible for parole, you come up in front of a parole board. You can mm -hmm. be denied every time and yeah. it could be common knowledge. Like, you, yeah. yeah, technically like Manson had parole, but he was never going to get parole. Yep. But mm -hmm. no, that's, you can't do that here. The most recent information on Beverly was just this past February, actually February 15, 2001. There's an article that came out that talked about how Alit, she's now 52, she was offered the COVID vaccination along with 360 other patients at the hospital. And this caused an uproar among civilians mm, because Katie, who was one of Alit's victims, who is now 30, the one that suffered the paralysis and the blindness and the brain damage, she had not yet received the vaccine. Well, I could see why that causes an uproar. I've heard similar things also about um, prisoners here even getting the vaccination before people on the outside. But so. I think what people need to remember, obviously, you know me on my soapbox about humanity, but I won't do that. But the fact that people who are working in prisons, corrections officers and other employees, they should be protected. Well, uh, in prisons, too, it's a rapid spread. So it's you know what I mean? It does. It won't, this, if you don't vaccinate in prisons it, with the air, the shared airspace, yeah. everyone's going to be sick all the time. And that's yeah. not going to. Yeah. The long -term, and that's taxpayers money. Long term consequences are terrible. So, yep. yeah. Even if you don't care about the health of inmates, it's Practicality. still- Practicality. Absolutely. So Megan, what are your theories here? Oh, I mean- Finally, she, sorry. Sorry, <laughs> we got go ahead. Here. No, I was going to say, finally, we got here, Megan. What do you think? Well, she has, I mean, it was a clear case of Munchausen. My feeling is probably that as one of, you know, several children, she got lost in the mix and just did not get the attention probably from her father that she was seeking or her, you know, mm -hmm. it's a parent. So she started, I mean, she started acting out real early. So she developed Munchausen, um, otherwise known now as factitious disorder, mm -hmm. a little bit early on and then realized, you know, that she could up her game. So Munchausen by proxy, where she was making her, you know, making her patients sick, serves two purposes. So either way, it works. If her patients survive, she's seen as the hero. If her patients die, people give her sympathy because she's so sad. I tried mm -hmm. so hard. So this serves the need that, yep. you know, need. The hard part is, you know, this is criminologically what's happened, right? And so this is a mental illness, but it's where, do, how does this, how do we reconcile her mental illness with her behaviors and her actions and her punishment? You know, someone who's swallowing glass 
is attention seeking, but obviously, you know, this that's a sick person. Mm-hmm. So how do we reconcile that with the punishment? Criminologically, where are you at? I mean, are we we agree that this is just Munchausen and Munchausen by proxy? I also think there possibly a little borderline personality here because you look at these patterns of instability in her interpersonal relationships. There's issues with her self-image and her affect, the impulsivity, the attention-seeking. And there is an association between those with borderline personality disorders and those with factitious. Yes. Yeah. So um, Munchausen's is a severe personality disorder in itself. Yes, right? okay. it is. Yeah. So, and and uh, you know what? We talked about that in another episode, uh, the relationship, I think, between borderline and Munchausen. I swear yes, I remember it. I know. It. it sounds familiar. So, too. yeah, I would have to, I totally would agree that there's there's borderline there as well. It's also rare for someone to have Munchausen's and Munchausen's by proxy. Yeah, usually it's one or the yeah. other. Um, I find that pretty interesting about this case as well. And there's uh, another aspect here and is that unfortunately, Munchausen by proxy, when you're a healthcare worker, I've seen a lot of big cases here where the red flags are all there. You have, you know, a common caretaker. Usually these deaths or incidents cluster around the night shift. Mm -hmm. You have the presence of punctures. Mm -hmm. uh, You find injectable substances. All the red flags are there, but it still takes them a long time to connect the dots. And then in this case, they actually wound up, I mean, it, way too late getting yep. her. But what I've seen before in other cases with these kind of, you know, angels of death is that the person is actually transferred to another hospital so that the, the liability issue is is not an issue. I'm glad you brought up the angel of death because people refer to her as an angel of death. But I don't see that here because, Megan, correct me if I'm wrong, but angel of death describes people who obviously are typically nurses or doctors who decide who should live or die sometimes helping to end people's suffering or to play the hero role. I guess you see the hero role a little, but I don't think she did anything. I don't think you could say she was like a Jack Kevorkian, right? Because Kevorkian- Kevorkian's was, not an angel of death. Oh, no, I, I would look at it the other way. So Kevorkian is assisted suicide, mm-hmm. um, but he he's not trying to take the ultimate control over life or death. Angels okay. of deaths are- taking control gotcha. over life or death. So I actually think she fits that. Gotcha. Whereas I think Kevorkian is more, you know, again, he's not making the final decision. He's not trying to control. He's just facilitating a process. Angel of death term is usually used when we're talking about healthcare serial killers. For healthcare serial killers, do you ever see them described as Munchausen's by proxy? Because Munchausen's by proxy seems like it's a caregiver, but typically a parent. Not You don't usually see a nurse to... Um, No, I mean, first would be um, the parent or guardian, but then next would be healthcare. Yeah, there are definitely Munchausen Munchausen by proxy with healthcare um, killers as well. What do you think about, I can't wait to hear what you think. Are we there yet when we talk about the sentence? Was it right? Or do you have anything else before we get there? Um, the only other thing I wanted to talk about was how off, how rare is Munchausen? How, how rare is it? I don't know. That's the thing. There's no oh. way to know because it's- I thought you were going to answer that. Sorry. Well, I know, it's con- I know it's considered to be a very rare condition, but it's interesting that you can't really obtain accurate statistics because dishonesty is common with the illness. Right. So it's it's hard to. And you don't always know. You can't always attribute it to you can't always figure out um, if Munchausen was the cause of an actual illness. Exactly. Remember, one of the reasons why, especially with healthcare providers, the the numbers are marred is because someone is usually in a hospital already for a pre-existing condition. And so then it's then often attributed to that. And parsing that out is really hard. You know, these cases are not always easy. However, in this case and others I've seen, the signs were there much earlier and they were way too late in the game. Mm -hmm. I think the first error was hiring her when she didn't have the credentials. I think that was the first step, right? Or not giving her a psychiatric evaluation once she starts exhibiting these 
these behaviors. Sounds like it was a series of odd behaviors. And then leaving her as a lone supervisor to in a night yeah. shift, always a bad idea. Yep. Well, Megan, do you think the system got it right? So oh. she's civilly committed indefinitely. So, yes. 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 Okay. You know what? I I would have I would not have known about the minimum of thirty years in parole. To be perfectly honest, I think she's always going to pose a danger. Like even though people age out of crime, I think the civil commitment is appropriate in her case, and I don't always believe that. Now she clearly had a mental illness, but do you think I read some comments on this case? Why did she not plea insanity? Well, why didn't she? Well, I don't think she did because I don't think she's insane, first of all. I think insanity means you don't know the difference between right and wrong. Oh, well, she wouldn't. Um, I'm sorry. So the reason she didn't plead insanity is because she wouldn't stipulate any guilt. Yeah. You'd have to stip. If you're going to plead insanity, you have to stipulate that you did it because you qualified under. You did it but for or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. But she didn't want to. She was totally objecting and wouldn't take responsibility. So that's why she didn't plead insanity. Well, and also, as I tell my students, the difference between competency and insanity. When we talk about insanity, a person does not hide their crimes because they don't believe they did anything wrong. Yeah. So it's you can claim you were insane, but then it's like, well, then why'd you steal the logbook? Or why, you know? That there was a cover-up, a series of steps. And there's also the fact that certain personality disorders and certain mental illness, some of them will help negate your culpability, mm-hmm. right? Some of them will make it so that you have diminished culpability. Yeah. But a lot of them don't. Yeah. Um, and so that's the problem mm-hmm. here as well. Nor should they in this situation. No, she was aware of her actions and she took steps to cover it up. And, you know, there was enough to show sort of rational choice theory, which we talk about sometimes too, a series of steps and a series of decisions made to further, you know, the end goal here. So yeah. I think justice was probably served in this case, although I'm very sad that for those families. All right, Megan. Well, that's all we have for today. And with that, this is our fourth and final episode of this special UK series. We'd like to thank Acorn TV so much for sponsoring this special edition of Women in Crime. We've had such a blast making these shows and we hope to work together again soon. And if you love British mysteries, dramas, and more, please be sure to check out Acorn TV for 30 days for free using the promo code WOMEN. And thank you for listening, and we'll catch you next time on Women in Crime. Women in Crime is written and hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer and editor is James Varga. Music composition is by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, please remember to subscribe and leave a review. You can also support the show while gaining access to ad-free episodes, exclusive AMAs, and other bonus content for a small monthly contribution through Patreon. For more information, visit patreon.com slash women in crime. Sources for today's episode include The Independent, Radio Times, Daily Mail, The Guardian, The Sun, and Mayo Clinic. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.